Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Um, today, I'm blessed and honored to have a good friend of mine, Alex Shrimp, join us on the show. Um, I met Alex working with Rise Above about two months ago, and, you know, I never would have known that he had a story similar to, to mine and that of some of you that are listening because he carries himself in a way that you don't, you wouldn't think that. But I think that is with a lot of people who pulled themselves out of darkness. They have a glow about them that is almost impossible to like, one, not see, and two, like extinguish. So thank you for coming, Alex. Thank you so much for having me, Jack. Uh, firstly, the honor and the blessing is all mine. Like I said, I mean, what you're giving me is an opportunity to get another rep on really reflecting back and processing a lot of this. I think the best way that we can, you know, grow through our experience is to share it. And, um, yeah, it's a gift for me to sit here with you. And we just had an awesome evening chatting and getting to know each other more. Uh, this idea of greeting each other skeletons first, you know, and giving each other permission to be authentic with our experience and build representation is the more I'm learning is it's so invaluable and we need more of it. Uh, we need to feel okay showing our scars off a little bit more. And, uh, you know, this is a great opportunity for me to do that with somebody that I trust and look up to in a lot of ways. So I got to lead off with gratitude for you, man, because I love what you're doing. Um, so for most of y'all who I assume won't know me, uh, my name is Alex Schrempf. I grew up in uh, Bellevue, Washington, uh, by way of Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, my father played for the Indiana Pacers when I was born, and right after I turned one, that summer he was traded to the uh, Seattle Supersonics. Um, my father, Detlef, he was born and raised in Germany, rural Germany, outside of Leverkusen, and um, our whole extended family is still out there. My mother was raised in Augsburg, Germany, and uh, she was an athlete as well. Um, and I was the first in uh, my lineage born on U.S. soil. Um, and a lot of my childhood was in the Pacific Northwest, the majority of it, all of it, really. And my father, you know, he, he came out to the States in an exchange student program with Centralia High School. And then uh, pretty much the heydays of his professional career were in Seattle as well, playing for the Supersonics. And he also played at the University of Washington. So uh, his relationship and my mother's relationship with the Pacific Northwest um, is deep-rooted in their lives and significant to them. And, you know, it had a big impact on me growing up in the community where my dad found so much success on the, in the, on the court. And, uh, you know, I guess I can go back a little bit further first and talk about just growing up, um, you know, in Bellevue. I was a mixed-race kid in a predominantly Caucasian town, a predominantly conservative town, um, lovely accepting people and a beautiful example of what community can do for uh, families and people that grow up around it. Um, and yet, you know, I mentioned this when we were in Milwaukee together, I was called a contrarian somewhat recently by an old coach of mine. And I was thinking about that a lot because um, it was never really by choice. I, I constantly sought belonging. I constantly wanted to figure out how to fit in. As a kid of color in a white school, um, I had a big differentiator that I had to learn how to balance. Um, and then as I grew up, you know, realizing that I was a gay male in America in a world where I didn't have many representation around it, um, that was another way that I felt like I did not fit in. Um, a lot of the people around me 
did not have extended families in Europe that didn't speak English. So that felt like a differentiator. Um, a lot of my friends, their fathers or mothers were successful in their own white, right in a plethora of ways, um, but none of them were really on a pedestal and that popular, at least well-known, like my dad was. Um, I had a lot of things that just made me feel a little different. Uh, I grew up with my younger brother who has special needs, and uh, so I was, as a kid, you know, contrasting my relationship with my younger brother with that of my best friends and their younger brothers and recognizing the differences, constant differences. And um, where I found belonging was in the sport of basketball. And the juxtaposition of that in retrospect for me was, you know, basketball is a hyper-masculine environment, men's sports. And uh, I grew up in a world where anything weak, anything soft, anything less than was uh, affiliated with gayness. That's gay. The, the F word thrown loose around in gyms, you know, my dad was in the NBA, so I got to spend a lot of time and proximity around the professional environment of basketball at the highest level. You know, a lot of what we consider entitled alpha males in one space at the highest level of competition. Um, and anything that referred to, you know, outsiders that didn't fit in, I started realizing in adolescence, like, they're talking about me, you know, and so... A lot of my story is about trying to figure out where I could fit in. And um, part of the challenge for me was, you know, early on, I think it was my sophomore summer of high school, um, I agreed to go party with some friends. And the feedback I got from sharing those stories after that first night of drinking on my buddy Alex's uh, lawn and camping by the bonfire the feedback I got was so positive that I thought that that's what I needed to do to fit in. Um, and that began my journey in addiction, alcoholism, and recovery. But, you know, I think about you know, growing up as a closeted gay male and hiding a core aspect of himself from the world, uh, I was never able to fully embrace myself. And I recognize that a lot of... Um, that lack of esteem and confidence and that need to seek out validation externally instead of giving it to myself came from a lot of that. You know, earlier at dinner we talked about there's a, the David White quote I shared with you, that once you fully comprehend somebody's story, you'll understand the nature of their actions. Um, you know, I was insecure and I was really fear-based for a lot of my upbringing because I was so scared that already being somebody on the outside and not fully fitting in that if people really knew the full concept or aspect of my the nature of my being that I would be ostracized even further when all I wanted was to fit closer into the middle um, and yet and still basketball gave me that in a lot of ways you know I was blessed with my mother and my father's athleticism um, I was blessed with the privilege of having exposure to high levels of knowledge in the game of basketball. Um, I was able to grow up, you know, we talked earlier about privilege. I got to listen to the great and powerful uh, Mayor Bruce Harrell of the city of Seattle speak last week, and he talked about privilege, how he grew up privileged. And I grew up succinctly privileged because I had a, a consistent, loving family around me in my entire upbringing. Um, they loved me in their way, but my family's still tight-knit. And my parents loved me unconditionally and made sure I knew that over and over again. And 
the more I've learned, the more I've realized that that's probably the biggest privilege any child can grow up with, and it is not the most common thing, you know. And so, I uh, I'm at this point now in my life where I really cherish that, um, and I'm so grateful for it. And there's not a way I can really, in words, express how much love I have for my family. But um, I know I wouldn't be here today without them. And yet, and still. A big part of my story was suffering in silence, and I didn't even let them in on how much I was hurting as I started realizing how much I felt like I really just didn't fit into the world. Um, um, go ahead. Uh, you mentioned, you know, being mixed, um, being German, uh, being a gay male. Um, for me growing up, I grew up on a reservation. Mm -hmm. My mother, full-blood Cherokee. My father, half, half white. Me, I'm in the middle somewhere. Well, I always got picked on. Well, not necessarily picked on, because I was mean, you know what I mean? But I, I would hear, I would hear people talking talking trash, you know? Mm -hmm. He's a white boy. He ain't Indian enough. And then when I went into the white world, <laughs> I wasn't white enough. I was too brown. Mm -hmm. And it was a constant juggle for me, especially when I went off the reservation to a school that wasn't there, where my whole life, not only did I only grow up uh, with Indians, it was the same kind of Indians, you know? Mm -hmm. It was Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. I knew these kids, I grew up with them from daycare all the way up. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, like, it seems like you were trying to find acceptance in, um, in a bunch of, not in a bunch of places, but it was hard for you to find acceptance. It was like a, like a bullseye, kind of. You were trying to get to the middle, but then you had this ring because you were black. Mm -hmm. Then you had this ring because you were German. Then you had another obstacle in the fact that you were gay. So mm -hmm. does that, man, I had to be tough to deal with. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I can relate so much to what you just said. There's an Earl Sweatshirt lyric, uh, I think it was on his Doris album. Or he, it's a really short stanza. He said, black to the white kids and white to the blacks. You know, I, uh, one of the things I'm so grateful for about my upbringing was my father and my best friend's fathers, they said, all right, you've been growing up on the east side in Bellevue, playing in this little bubble of basketball for a while, and we're going to send you out to Rainier Vista, and you're going to play for Vista Concept. Um, and so suddenly we were crossing the lake and going out to South Seattle and playing basketball, trying out for a team. I remember going from starkly the darkest kid on my team photo um, to the second lightest kid only to my best friend, Matt, <laughs> who was wider than a piece of paper. <laughs> and... Um, what was so powerful about that was recognizing, like, with this median, um, this, this mode of expression that is basketball, you know, we're all brought together. You see the similarities and all the, the same tendencies and humanisms of people, um, despite their different backgrounds, when you have this common denominator that is, whether it's a sport, whether it's a, uh, an art, whether it's just an interest or a game, any of these things that can bring people together kind of expose our similarities and bring us closer together, right? Um, and yet, a big part of that experience to me was recognizing when I went and played with a staunchly different demographic, um, I became the whitewashed black kid. I wasn't, when I was kind of looking forward to, well, I didn't really, even though I am half white, I didn't really fully identify with everybody on this side, maybe I will over here. Um, and I still felt that kind of outsidedness, you know, um, being an outsider to it and you know over time and that's the gift of it over time those relationships become real and you know you're able to look past these little differences on sight you know but um 
that was absolutely an aspect for me was when I, I think one thing I've learned through basketball is it's so important for us to feel like we belong. Um, I think, you know, we talked over dinner about how so many of our little breaks that we have as people are rooted to something. You know, it goes back to that David White quote. It's, there's something in our story that has affected us that's led us to who we are today. Um, I'm grateful that I can look at my life story now and feel like it is all a gift. All the toughest parts of it have allowed me to feel levels of emotion that therefore enable me to empathize with people in similar spaces in their life, um, to have a lot of grace with people, uh, whether they understand that side of things or not, um, and most importantly, to accept and be at ease with myself, you know, and uh, not necessarily carry as much guilt or shame or fear as I did for so many years as a kid. Um, I have to thank basketball for that too. You know, my dad was one of the first international players. I think he was the first international born all-star. And uh, because of that, you know, we were pretty early on on the, uh, the efforts of the league to expand their presence internationally. And so I had a lot of experiences growing up as a kid where I got to tag along with my dad to different countries where he would work with Basketball Without Borders. He would work with the NBA with Adidas, who was his sponsor at the time. They had this amazing program called Adidas Nations where they'd formulate teams from different regions across the world and bring them together, whether they'd find just players or full-on teams of kids from certain countries. <clears throat> and I got to see the power of basketball in so many different corners of this world. I got to witness, you know, I have a, a hero of mine, Frank Traore, who works for NBA Africa, uh, speaks more languages than I can count, knows how to fly a plane, uh, is an incredible chef, and knows basketball. And he has uh, been with NBA Africa for over a decade, maybe longer. And um, I watched him in Abuja, Nigeria, surrounded by, I want to say, six people in six different languages or dialects, um, all complaining about you know something not working with this camp that was thrust upon us. We were expecting 50 kids and 500 showed up, and we had two hoops and 30 basketballs in this giant parking lot. And um, with the most ease and grace, he was translating and mediating conversation between so many different languages and backgrounds and types of people. And suddenly we were running this clinic where I was running dribbling drills with Tamika Williams and my dad was running shooting drills on one of the hoops and uh, a couple of the other coaches were running sipping drills just all in this open space and then it culminate with all of us coming together on the court and I'd be getting to play basketball with people I didn't speak a lick of their language and they didn't speak a lick of mine and yet once that ball started bouncing we knew how to communicate you know and that's what I meant by having some medium to bring people together and exposing just how close we are you know I I mentioned Bruce Harrell earlier, and I'm really charged up about him, mainly because one thing that he led with in his address last week that I got to listen to, uh, he was introduced as, I think, the first mixed race, or, yeah, second, first or second mixed race, and pardon me for not knowing the stat clearly, um, mayor of the city of Seattle, and um, he's black and Japanese, I believe, and I hope I'm not getting that wrong. Um, but he, he was introduced that way. And, you know, as a, as a kid that's learned to really dislike labels, um, 
You know, nobody wants to be labeled and compartmentalized and put into a box, especially in this day and age when we're all so aware of all these different different ways of life or um, w- modes of perception, right? Um, Bruce led with, I want to touch on race because it is important for, and this is me summarizing his message, the representation is invaluable. It is important for me to represent my background, but it's also important for us to recognize that it is not a differentiator, right? He he posed a rhetorical question, which I foolishly raised my hand and answered to. Um, But he asked how many people in that room, which was a predominantly Caucasian room, how many people here are mixed race? And me and another gentleman raised our hands kind of shyly in the back. And he's like, it was more of a rhetorical question, but usually you don't have many people answer that. And yet, how many of you have done a 23andMe? And how many of you realize that your roots go back to so many more places than you realize? I mean, at the end of the day, we're all multicultural. We're all multiracial in some way. Um, and yet, I think what one of our challenges is, I think we, we look at it as differentiators. And we have to balance that with pride of our heritage, pride, pride in our ancestors and the stories that we carry. And yet we have to recognize the humanisms, right? So I, I grew up with this interesting point of view of we're all so similar, and yet we all talk and focus so much on our differences. And me as a kid, I was so focused on my differences. Um, and they terrified me because I didn't want to be that different. I was, I just wanted to fit in, you know? And, uh, so we're talking about addiction and I'm talking about a lot of other parts of my story, but, um, um, go ahead. On one of the previous episodes, one of my good friends, Rob Martins, he said addiction is so much deeper than just drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Um, it made me think of earlier when you were talking about the internal work. There were times in my life where I'd be sober on the outside. Mm-hmm. It'd be like if you're a forerunner out there, say, God forbid, it wrecked, you know, and you went to, to the body shop. Mm-hmm. They said it was totaled, and they redid the body. They just put a new body on it. And you're driving down the road, right? It's good for a while, looks good, you think it's good, and then you get 50 miles down the road and you break down because mm-hmm. they didn't fix the engine. So that's what it made me think of, you know, because, you know, it's just one part of it, you know. Um, Band-Aids, it makes me think of the Band-Aid analogy. Mm -hmm. Um, You quit drinking or you quit getting high, that's you taking off the Band-Aid. Now we need to work on the wound underneath, you know what I mean? So I I understand that. It makes me think about masking, too, you know, like... It's, a, it's an art form at the end of the day, and it's a, a skill that nobody should have to learn, you know. I think... Uh, Some people are well-versed in it, too, yeah. you know, like, even even to the fact of, like, not even be able to just one mask, but two or three or four, you mm-hmm. know, like, social chameleons, you know, and, like, that, that's a... For me, that was a... It was a double-edged sword, like we are talking about earlier, because I can go into any environment and feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I could make people think about me, what I needed them to in that environment to get what I wanted from them, whether that be them to get off my back or telling me stuff that I needed to hear, you know, mm-hmm. like, you're messing up, you know, you're better than this. Like, and I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm good, you know, and I'd spin off this big tail and I'd make them, you know, I'd make it look like I was doing what they wanted me to do, mm-hmm. just so I could, you know, so I understand that completely, the masking. Yeah. That's, 
man of uh, made me think of Game of Thrones. I don't know if you've ever watched that show. Oh, yeah. You know the, the what's it called in Bravos? The House of Many Faces. Mm -hmm. And that's that's how I was. Yep. Right there, like, and it was to do bad stuff just like that. So mm -hmm. I I understand that completely. You know, cover up the wounds, man. Um, I had this balance of, you know, my younger brother with his challenges growing up it taught me to diminish my own because it could be worse and yet also um, my father was well known and I had his reputation to uphold by proxy as well and so it created this just feedback loop of my feelings shouldn't be expressed as much um, I, I, I grew up to, from a bird's eye view with staunch privilege in a lot of ways and um, who am I to complain right we talked about how you can't equate suffering you know it's a Dave Chappelle quote I think I heard him say that in the stand-up which always resonated with me but um, I equated a lot um, my brother has a harder we should focus on him I should not complain as much um, and also people look at us and I have to make this look good and so by the time I was you know, an adolescent going into adulthood, I was very good at making things look very good on the surface, but I was also terrified of letting people in past that level, surface level, right? Because... You could be exposed. Yeah, I was so scared of people knowing, really, one, how much turmoil I felt, um, and two, judging, like, open myself up to the judgment of either that's, that doesn't fit in or that's not what we thought you were, you know? Um, Did... Um did it make it hard to ask your parents or talk to your parents or maybe reach out for help? Oh, yeah. Because you had a little brother that, you know, in my mind, if I was you, I would have been thinking, you know, I can't be bothering my parents with my petty shit whenever my brother needs them way more than I do. You it was a big I mean? part of how I looked at it. You know, uh, I saw how hard my parents worked um, to, one, figure out how's the best way to support my younger brother, um, and then, two, uh, just the handling the uncertainty of all of it, you know. They had a lot on their plates. And my mom uh, is one of the fiercest, strongest women I've ever met in my life. She's a hero of mine in so many ways. Yeah, I saw her caring a lot. And I would always feel so guilty when I'd add to that, you know. But especially as a kid, you learn to bottle things up. We just talked about it. cup runneth over, you know, uh, in the not, not in the right way. Um, <laughs> things will overload and overflow, and it comes out in some way. So I acted out in a handful of ways. And um, that manifested in a big way once I got uh, introduced to drugs and alcohol. Um, because, one, it slowed my brain down. Um, it stopped me from thinking and overthinking about all this insecurity and how I didn't fit in and what if and hopefully people won't notice you know um, but it also endeared me to people it made me cooler in what I thought you know um, my high school experience was and uh, made me fit in a little bit more and that feedback was a big part of you know I think why that became such a big part of my story um, and I wanted to rewind a little bit and go back to, I talked about Mayor Harrell. <laughs> this isn't an advertisement uh, for the mayor. But, you know, mayor. <laughs> yeah. but he did. He, he led that point about race, and it made me think a lot about the value of representation. You know, um, I grew up as a basketball player, and there was nobody uh, in the league who was out and um, 
period. <laughs> there was no and of. There was just period. There wasn't a gay basketball player. Um, there were some that came out post-career, which kind of reinforced the idea that it's very hard to do in this world because you don't fit in, right? Um, I think back to, like, the burden of fame, the burden of success is, you know, you, you're put on this pedestal and you have this platform. Um, we don't want to label people. There shouldn't be labels. I shouldn't have to introduce myself and identify as a gay male. I'm a man in America who, um, and I have a set of values and a set of goals and dreams, and I care about the world around me. I care about my people. And it should be the stop point right there. That's all people should know. But I also have to balance that with the recognition that if there was somebody that was respected in my sport or in my world that I knew um, that I could identify with in that way, the value I think that would have had for me, you know, it might have, and I'm not deflecting blame here, um, but it might have had a big impact on me. And, you know, I know I'm, now I know I'm not the only one, you know? And so that's where I, I, I really loved the way Bruce kind of introduced that, that topic because he led with it. He said, this is a label, you know, look at it as a label. Don't look at it as a definition of me. Um, and don't look at it as a differentiator. It does not push us further apart. I think we all have so much more in common than we'll ever realize, right? But, um, you know, for me, I couldn't feel more different from the world around me growing up. And those insecurities and uh, that lack of belonging in so many ways at a core level are what generated this need to find another way to process, to deal and cope, um, to fit in. And um, that became partying. And, you know, I, I think back to my junior summer of high school after a not the best sophomore year. I could have been a lot better, um, and I was partying a lot by the end of it. Um, I went out to Germany for the first time and played for the junior national team, and um, the pace was so heavy there that there was no room for anything else, you know. And uh, I, I got a lot of, I got a lot of affirmation from that group there. You know, it was. I didn't even realize in retrospect. It's almost good I didn't speak German at the time because. I didn't realize how much pressure there was on me to go to Germany where my father had made, you know, came from and done what he did and then be that shrimp that comes back to Germany to play for the junior nationals. So the articles about me in the German papers, I had no idea what they said. So I didn't know whether they were critical or not. And I believe that they were because I was average to above average a little, but I wasn't the savior of it. And, um, I'm grateful in the moment that I wasn't really carrying that pressure. Um, and instead, I had this team of peers who welcomed me in, even though I didn't speak the same language as them, um, and affirmed me and gave me the courage to really be myself with that team and just play basketball. And uh, it was a powerful experience for me. I'm so grateful for them. I came back. I got hurt my junior year. Um, but I wasn't partying. I wanted to figure out how to get better. And I had trainers and coaches around me. Tim Manson was a huge one who inspired me to work. Um, my confidence is derived from my preparation, and my preparation just takes time and effort. And I put a lot of time and effort in. And when I came back from my senior year, um, I, uh, I had a great season, you know, and I really, I, I established myself when I had missed out on my whole junior year and wasn't really on the map at all spent that whole 
big, you know, that junior year summer I spent in Germany and I wasn't here, so I wasn't playing AAU, I wasn't getting looks. And I came back and I balled out and I had this confidence and I wasn't needing to, you know, make up for that or fill that void, you know, with substances. Um, and I carried into that momentum going into uh, my freshman year at UCLA. And part of the reason I chose to go to LA is because I was just thinking, you know, West Hollywood, um, you know, it's, it's California, you know, it's so progressive, you know, I'll be able to figure out how to be myself up down there, I think. And Did maybe you come out. Culture shock there? No, not really. You know, I think that's the gift of having that medium of basketball. It's all the same. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. there was the change of, you know, just the pure nature of playing the game and competing to D- division one basketball at the highest level is a business. And, um, you know, I could go off on an hour and a half of my opinions of all that and how it affected me and a multitude of young men. But um, more importantly, I look back and recognize that I think my first day on campus, I was brought in by uh, Kenny Donaldson into a room with all my freshman teammates. Uh, I was Second time meeting two of them, but my first time meeting most of them. And I knew within two minutes I couldn't come out to these guys. Um, and so, you know, back into the closet I was. And um, Had you came out to anybody at that point? Mm-mm, not really. Um, also, I wanted to ask you one thing. Before we move. Um, you alluded to it when you were going back to Germany. I didn't want to ask you earlier because this is your story, not mm-hmm. your dad's. But did having your dad as such a good basketball player have added pressure on you to perform like oh that's Dale Shrimp's son mm-hmm. you know I'm sure that had to like you said the savior of the German national team you know <laughs> I was just wondering if that was more pressure on you to perform at a higher pace or people were expecting you to play just like your dad or better probably better you know that's a great question and um, you know it's, I kind of alluded to it but I didn't touch on it, so thank you. I, you know, my dad had the bulk of his whole creation of his career in the Pacific Northwest, so he was known, and um, people knew who he was, knew what his game was like. And uh, as I look back on my upbringing in Seattle and playing basketball in Seattle, I recognize, if I'm honest, that most of the pressure was pressure I created for, on myself. You know, there were moments. You know, hearing somebody in the stand say, oh, he can't shoot at all like his dad or yeah, yeah, little murmurs. I remember there was this forum online, it's like Northwest Prep Hoops or something like that. It was, it was early internet days, right? So I remember there was a password on it, but somehow me and my buddies figured out how to get in there. And I remember reading a thread on me and it was pretty much like, oh, no, he's, he's not as good as his dad, yada, yada. Um, and I remember I was hard on myself about that, but... I also have to acknowledge that I had a support network and good people around me that would never, um, you know, push that idea forward or bring that to my Make attention. The comparison. They would never, you know, and I'm very grateful for that. I think about, you know, my experience in Germany, uh, those guys saved me in a lot of ways and really remedied my love for the game. Um, and I think of my teammates and the guys that I grew up with playing basketball in my hometown. In my senior year, we graduated nine seniors and seven of us had been playing together since, I want to say, now maybe, sorry, five of us have been playing together since like third grade. And um, yeah, I, I had this insulation of a good support system around me that um, did, did protect me from a lot of it. But at the same time, you know, 
what goes on between these two ears, you know, the power of the brain and the stories you tell yourself. And if you get enough feedback that tells you, you know, one, already I'm a, feeling like an outsider, no matter how hard I try not to be. Um, and then two, you know, there's these expectations and these standards um, and you're recognizing you're not meeting them. You know, it can be hard on a young mind, you know. I and can so, imagine, man. Uh, you're already feeling like an outsider for a multitude of reasons. And then the one thing that brings you peace is bringing more pressure. Mm. You know, so. Yeah, it's like that juxtaposition of my love for the game. And it was a volatile one over the course of my whole career. I, I finished playing hating basketball. And, you know, you can't love something. I mean, you can't hate something without loving. It's like the same, what is it? wavelength or something it's just the other side or out of phase but spectrum yeah, yeah. I um, I had so much emotion tied to the game of basketball and I think I've had so many conversations with peers of mine who are at the same stage in life had a lot of basketball in their life and so much of us recognize that so much of how we see the world is rooted in our understanding of the game um, and I think that's any mode of expression. If you're a musician, if you're a, an artist, if you're a chess player, you know, you're going to understand the world based off of this subject of mastery that you might have developed. I'm not saying I'm a master of anything, but, um, you know, with that, I mean, this game shaped how I saw the world, and yet it was so up and down. I would go from loving every aspect of it, loving community, loving the people that it brought into my life, loving the, the affirmation and the the success it would bring me and even some of the challenges. But then I would go into hating how the game could be changed and how different values could be brought up and prioritized over what you thought was most important. And, you know, when I, when I stopped playing, I mean, I have to rewind back too. you know, my sophomore year, I had a great stretch for about three months. I, uh, this is at UCLA. This is at UCLA, my freshman year. Um, I was a recruited walk-on, and uh, I was getting burned in practice. And, you know, I dunked on a couple guys in, work, in workouts and uh, was had a role of being one of the guys on the court. And, you know, they told me I'd have this opportunity to earn a scholarship after my sophomore year, you know, as long as I do the work and I show up and I uh, keep on. And I got hurt pretty bad um i think it was january of my freshman year supplicated my hip um and i was out for a while and um that was when like a big shift happened for me i uh started you know realizing i didn't feel as much of the team as i wanted to be i'd never been on a team where there were different levels of belonging you know, and in D1 basketball, you've got walk-ons that put all the time in, but they don't get the training table, and they might not even get to sit on the bench during a game. I remember the first time I had, after I got hurt, I had to sit across from the bench in the stands and watch my team play. And I didn't, you know, a big part of that was ego, but uh, it, it, it didn't feel right. I didn't feel like I was a part of this thing anymore. And among that, too, I was surrounded by a handful of teammates that in their own right had their own stories and their own challenges but the commonality between a lot of us in that freshman sophomore class is that we would party and I found that the best way to endear myself if it wasn't on the court to these teammates who I was scared of them learning that I'm not fully like them um, was to just join in on the party and so that became kind of my downward spiral over the course of the next year and about four months 
um, began partying my face off because that was the only way I got feedback that I was involved and belonged. And uh, I'm not deferring blame either. Nobody made this choice for me, you know. Um, but these are the stories I told myself, and um, that was the reputation I began to build, you know. I look back at it now, and I recognize I squandered a big part of this opportunity I had. Um, and yet I was also slave to an addiction. I was slave to insecurity. Um, I don't know if I would have, if somebody told me the right thing at the right moment, I don't know if it would have made a big difference. I was hurting and in so many ways uh, on the inside and I couldn't even express it. I just wanted to fit in, you know. And I couldn't do that being myself and what that does to your spirit. I mean, if, that, if it's a light, man, I was as dim as you could be. You couldn't see me in the dark. And yet I'd smile and I'd be nice and I would never make it about me and I would just try to be a part of it. And um, I put on weight and I wasn't as good a shape. I wasn't, after I came back from that injury, I wasn't progressing the way I wanted. I remember I, I went out to Germany again for the U-20s the summer between my freshman and my sophomore year. And, uh, you know, I had a, such a strong experience, but I was also, you know, came back from this recovery. I was playing again, but I wasn't loving basketball at all. Um, and I went out to Germany and, you know, we started working our asses off and uh, I was invigorated by being back with a lot of these guys that I really looked up to and admired and just loved for welcoming me, welcoming me in. But I also got really sick. Um, they told me over and over again I had a, the flu or I had a cold, but like my throat was so sore that I couldn't even swallow water, I remember. And I, I think I collapsed during a two-a-day. And finally they took me to a doctor in like week three. And this German doctor, he shined a light in my throat and he was like, mein Gott. Um, and they diagnosed me with mono. And then they're like, you should just go home. And so my second experience with, you, with Germany basketball um, was just it kind of blew up in my face. Like I wasn't in a physical or mental state to be able to show up for it the right way. Um, I missed out on the last tournament of that year. I think, I think it was further than three weeks. Um, but the last tournament was Croatia, and I think from there we were going to the Euro Championships, and um, I had to go home because I literally had mono. I was sick as a dog. And uh, not to make an excuse, but I wasn't... That was, I think, was a byproduct of the way I was behaving and the way I was treating myself leading up to that experience. You know, I kind of was looking at it as like this other opportunity to kind of course correct, and then it kind of just fizzled. Um, so I came back and, you know, I had a summer at home, and then I went back for preseason. School started, but I was partying. I, I had no love for the game anymore, and there was a lot of not to point fingers, there was a lot of toxicity in that gym at the time. You know, our coaches were not, um, they, weren't, they weren't relating to our players. Uh, our players were not respecting our coaches. Our players were not respecting each other. Um, a lot of the strong leadership that we had in our senior and fifth year senior class for my freshman year left. Um, there's a lot of young adults, really kids, um, in this really, really, this toxic environment, you know, and I didn't enjoy being a part of it, but I was balancing that with the pride and joy of being a UCLA basketball player. And so I, 
smiled and showed up and I would do what I could and I would leave and I would go party my face off and numb myself to all these emotions to it, you know. Um, my sophomore year was a blur and it was, you know, I look back at it, I just feel sad for this kid that um, knew that he was squandering this opportunity but really had no choice to. Didn't I had choice to, but I didn't have any power to make that choice, you know. And uh, after my sophomore year ended, I remember I, I walked into Coach Hallen's office and I told him, I don't think I can do this anymore and I'm going to stop playing. And I remember, I don't think he had much of a reaction to it. He's like, okay, and thank you for your time. And I kind of just walked out of there. And I was on autopilot. I remember walking back to my friend's place. I felt like I was washing myself, walking away from this chapter of my life, like not even realizing that I had just quit, you know. I never thought I was going to go play league, but I have German citizenship, and I knew that it was accessible and realistic for me. If I could develop at the best level I could, that I'd have an opportunity to go play internationally. Um, I didn't realize in that moment of emotion and in that decision to walk away from all of it, that, you know, I was a kid that had one path ahead of him that he was looking forward to and picturing and envisioning and dreaming about for so long. And then I was, I just threw it all away. And I didn't even really realize I did. Um, and that led me into, you know, my early twenties, which was just a continuation and acceleration of this downward spiral because now I was a, felt like a kid without a home. I was no longer a basketball player, and uh, I didn't even love the game. In fact, like I said, I pretty staunchly hated it. I hated how it made me feel. I hated how it chewed me up and spit me out. I didn't want anything to do with it for a while. Um, and yet, it was, it was my identity. It was what people knew me as at home. It was what people who didn't even know me knew me and my family as. Um, this was the thing. I'm supposed to love this. I'm supposed to know this. This is what I do. And yet I had no identity in it. And I didn't even identify like key traits of myself anymore because I had been just masking everything for so long, you know. Did you stay at UCLA? No. Um, jeopardizing the opportunity to earn a scholarship. I couldn't in good faith ask my family to continue to pay out-of-state tuition at a school like that. Um, and honestly, I was in such a rough spot. You know, I brushed over some stuff, and I feel like I, I, I got to give all of it. I, I had a moment in the fall of my sophomore year where I uh, was at a volleyball tournament in Manhattan Beach with a bunch of uh, friends, and uh, I got really, really, really drunk, and I came to in a drunk tank. I got drunk tanked at uh, Six Man, was what it's called, and... Uh, <clears throat> That was wild, man. I had a, without <laughs> opening me up, I think the, uh, what is the statute of limitations has passed, but I remember I had a fake ID and I'd given the cop my fake ID thinking that that might somehow get me off the hook because it's worked at every bar and store so far. Um, they gave you an obstruction charge? No, they, um. Did it work? Uh, what happened was the guy looked at my ID funny and brought me in. And then when they were taking me in, this guy, one of the cops, he looked at this ID, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, I know what this is. Do you have your real ID on you? And I had it in my wallet, and they pulled that out, and he 
said he knew that I was a basketball player. And uh, this point of empathy that he gave me, he threw that ID in the trash and then took my real ID and scanned it in. And uh, that could have gone way worse than it did. So much worse, yeah. you know. In retrospect, that was one of those moments. I was like, there must be something, right? Whew, and I didn't even really process that gesture at the time, you know. Um, I was so manic and caught up and fucked up that, you know, I, there was nothing there. Uh, I don't know. It, was, it took me to looking back at it to really understand the gift that that was. But still, you know, um, I had to go. This was my start of my sophomore year. I had to go to my coach, tell him what happened. Um, I was going to AA meetings. That was my introduction to AA. It was court-mandated. I got off everything else, the charge deferred. I just had to do this many meetings in this much time. And so I was going to practice, going to workouts, and then walking across campus to this little church, um, changing clothes so that people didn't know I was a UCLA basketball player and walking into these AA rooms with my slip and sitting in the circle and listening to these people talk but not listening. Um, Biding your time? Yeah. They have to sign your slip? Getting my signatures, you know. And, oh, man, I I was talked about this in a meeting a little while ago. I mean, I remember first one I sat in on, this guy talked about how <laughs> he saw a homeless woman with a, a grocery cart from Ralph's, and he got so mad at her, um, and he was talking about a period of just being a dry drunk and not really working on himself, and he's talking about how he got so mad at this woman for stealing a cart from where she shouldn't have that he tried to take it from her. <laughs> And I remember I was sitting in this room like, these people are absolutely insane. <laughs> like, this is not where I'm supposed to be. I am so much more sane than this. And in retrospect, man, I look back, man, I was the craziest person in that room, you know, because I was the only one that wasn't willing to look at his breaks and just figure out how to fix them or at least put forth the effort to. All these people were sitting here acknowledging their inconsistencies and their humanisms and being honest and open about them. And I'm here acting like everything's all good and ugh, I just have to be here because of something as if I didn't almost nearly fuck up everything, right? And my coaches gave me this chance. I was still on the team. I, I went to these meetings. I never participated. I don't think I spoke in one of the 25. And I got my signatures and the, course, the case got deferred and that all got signed up, man, and, or, you know, put away, it got sealed, and, uh, it was just a bullet dodge, it felt like, you know, and yet, I couldn't even fully appreciate it, because I just, I didn't value myself anymore at that point, I wasn't turning into the basketball player I wanted to, I didn't feel connected to the game, I didn't feel connected to my team, the only thing I felt any affirmation from was when I would party, and, get fucked up and do the things that people would and, or would and try to fit in in that way and I uh, as I think back at that time man it just hurts you know it is pain but there is a gift to that chapter that you know we'll get to and um, kind of fast forwarding the end of that season season that ended we were in spring quarter and I went up to Isla Vista with a bunch of party friends, a bunch of SC friends, a bunch of UCLA friends. Actually, I think most of my UCLA friends couldn't even make it, but I wanted to go up there and party. And I wanted to, seeking another group maybe I could fit into, maybe I'd be accepted to, and they're really nice. And I went out and had nobody looking out for me because that wasn't really my core group of friends. So 
I went out and I got way too drunk and uh, got in a fight. Got my shit rocked. So I was like one on five, I think. I don't know. From what I remember from it, there are these guys catcalling these two girls and being a little bit aggressive. And I told them to chill out and they started talking shit to me. I started talking shit to them. And uh, next thing I know, I'm in a hospital. Face is blown up and uh, I'm on my own, you know, in Isla Vista, a couple hours north of UCLA. And uh, the next morning, I get a ride back down. And remember, I walk into the training center because I needed to see somebody. And uh, everyone was just like, what? I was wearing sunglasses, but everyone was just like, what the fuck happened? And that was really, I think within a day, I went and talked to Coach Allen and quit. And I was totally broken, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and physically. Um, a big old black eye. And I remember I had a boot print on the side of my face. And uh, I was so ashamed and embarrassed, man. That period hurt, and, and I was just this lost kid that had no direction, and then I had no team. And so I came back home, and you know, I thought maybe separating myself from the game for a bit would help, but I wasn't looking at my problems. I, I came back home, and another way that I could fit in was by joining the party. All my friends that were back in Seattle were in frats and still in school, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to study, and. I'm so grateful that I had a group of people to, you know, fall back in line with as I moved back home at that point in my life. But, uh, yeah, it was, the party continued in a big way. You know, that was my positive affirmation, as sick as it was. You know, it was the only way I felt like I'd fit in. I couldn't, I, in that year is when I finally came out to my close friends and my family. Um, but, you know, as a kid, when you, when you say something like that out loud, finally, after bottling it up and creating this crazy story of what's going to happen if you do, um, ooh, it's, I didn't realize that it began a journey, you know? It wasn't something that you could just put out there and be done with. It's, it's, it's done. Mm -hmm. It's actually very similar to accepting alcoholism. Um, I had to then learn how to later in my life come out as an alcoholic, you know, and accept this part of myself. Um, but yeah, in my early 20s, I started kind of saying it out loud, and uh, I had some great people around me. My family was amazing in their response. My closest friends were incredible and accepting and loving. Um, and I was just like, okay, sweet, all right, that's all good, no problem. And I still didn't have an identity in it. You know, I didn't know how to be a gay male in America. This was 2010 at the time, and. Um, I still was battling this like relationship with basketball and one thing I'm so grateful for was uh, my high school coach coach O'Connor pretty much drug me into the gym because he needed an assistant coach for one of his teams and me and my old teammate Alex one of my favorite people in the world we uh we begrudgingly agreed to help coach for the season <laughs> begrudgingly um, I love that word <laughs> it was a lot of begrudging <laughs> in that period of my life but I didn't want to do it I didn't think I'd be good at it um and that became a chapter in my life that I'm so grateful for in the side of my relationship with basketball because by the end of that season, I loved basketball again and I felt confident in it because I started realizing how much I knew. Um, I realized I had an appetite for speaking and sharing a good message and uplifting people. And um, 
using basketball as the modality for that was a very powerful thing. And, you know, I talked about the volatility of my love for the game and my hatred for the game. Um, I, re- I rediscovered my love for basketball as a coach. And uh, I also recognized in myself that, you know, I, I carried so much that nobody saw. And um, I wanted to make sure that if I'm coaching a team that there's nobody that's hurting that isn't seen. And I wanted every, every kid that I had the chance to coach to felt seen and valued within the team. And uh, because of that, I felt like year over year, um, I got really good reviews. People liked how I did it. I um, got great feedback from families and friends, and I was good at it. I was good at something in basketball. I had value in basketball again, and that meant so much to me. Um, And yet, I also socially didn't really have an identity, you know? And so I still would party. I would still do what I could to fit in, and I was still really, really down. And, you know, a lot of this stuff started coming to a head because I just wasn't addressing, you know, I I thought that I'd just say that I'm gay out loud and I wouldn't have to really deal with it anymore. And I just realized I still have have a journey towards self-acceptance. I have a journey towards building a semblance of self-love in my life. And um, I didn't. Have, I still didn't really have any. It was still all external. It was basketball was finally loving me back a little bit. Um, my friends liked it when I partied and was funny and would, you know, buy all the rounds of shots and stuff. But um, I still internally, I was still masking my emotions. I was still acting like everything was good, and I still had no idea who I wanted to be. I went into um, I went to the Art Institute of Seattle to study uh, audio design technology, and um, I did that because the only other hobby I really had outside of basketball and snowboarding was making beats <laughs> for fun. Um, so I had this like idea in my head that maybe I could be a producer, right? But I need to learn how to do that. Um, but I never gave myself like the true affirmation and confidence that this is something attainable, you know? So I did it because it would look good and parents wanted me in school, got to take advantage of the opportunity to get an education. Still an external. Yep, and I wasn't doing it for myself. Um, I just picked the first thing that I felt like made sense and felt attainable and sort of. And um, Yeah, I just, I loved what I learned and I met some really inspiring people during my time there, but I, uh, it never charged me up and it was not really what I wanted, I don't think. Um, or maybe it was and I didn't feel worthy of it at the time. But, uh, during that next two years, um, it just built up. You know, I still didn't feel like I fit in. I still didn't feel like I uh, had really processed my experience in college playing basketball. Um, and I still had no direction. Like, I went from having such a clear path in the long run to just, what am I doing? I don't know what to do, you know. Um, and I still wasn't working on myself. I was just acting like it's all good and just showing up every day, like, hey, smiling. I'm going to be as nice as I can. Um, I was talking with some close friends of mine at dinner a couple weeks ago about this idea. I think a lot of um, gay men go through growing up in that, you know, I'm so scared that people are going to judge me before I have a chance to show them my character, that, you know, I would never lead. I would never put the label on myself as being a gay male, right? Um, 
because I was worried that I'd be judged before I even walked in the door. And so my, my idea was that I would be as good as I could and get people to know me in that light of my character and what I'm about uh, as a servant heart um, with gifts to offer, even though I couldn't see them in myself at the time. And then if they learned later on about this minor aspect of my personality, they would overlook it, they would overlook it right? And that's not the way to go about it. Um, you know, I think in a perfect world, eventually, you know, that's how it should be, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I'm rec- I recognize looking back that I was, that's rooted in insecurity and that's rooted in a lack of self-acceptance, right? Um, I couldn't accept myself and I was still relying on that outside and external validation. And I had to have that feeling of belonging and that feeling of acceptance, and then eventually maybe I'd let people in more, you know. And that, that continued to compound because when you're not allowing yourself to be yourself, you are literally... Lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. Um, and you're, you're, you're just diminishing your spirit. You I, I felt like I had no spirit during this period, you know, and it came to a head... Um, I was 24 years old, and uh, I was standing on, I think, the second or third floor of this building, and this window was open, and I was leaning down, and my car was parked out back, and I just wanted to get down there, because I think something was in my car I wanted, but I remember I just let myself fall out the window head first, and I thought I would just hit my head, and Maybe that would be it, you know. Um, and it was a pretty big fall. And I remember I, I came to wedged between my car and this concrete wall, and I was so messed up, man. Um, I knew I couldn't drive anywhere. My face was all jacked up, and uh, I, I asked for a. I called a Uber, I think, to get me back to my place and. Uh, the Wallingford area, and uh, I had left this party at the time. It was at a party, a house party, and I, I was separate from it. This happened, and then I left, and um, and it, it culminated with me being put in a cab to my parents' house. I knocked on the door and it must have been two in the morning my face blown up I had a fractured orbital lobe on, uh, around my right eye and my parents opened the door and I was thinking about this the other day it was just like the experience that I put them through in that to open the door in the middle of the night with the doorbell and see your son standing out there in that type of shape and we had to go to the hospital and I had to get an MRI on my head and what damage had been done and Am I going to bounce back from this, right? And I couldn't even say that I did this to myself. Um, masking it, even in those moments. Acting like it, it wasn't, as, it's not as bad as it looks, you know? Because um, I don't have the right to feel this sad and bad about myself. I, uh, 
I have too many good things in my life. I have a loving parents. I have, you know, resources. I have friends. Still gaslighting myself even in the darkest moment, you know. Lying to myself. And uh, I finally, through that experience, got to a point where I could ask for help. I'm talking about the power of saying things out loud. Um, I went and got... My parents found a spot where I could go and seek treatment. I went to Arizona. And I went to a 45-day program out there. That was the second time I was reintroduced to the rooms of AA. And this time I had an appetite. I was like, I, I am a broken person and I'm trying to fix it. Um, because I cannot keep doing this to myself. And that became a journey of healing that is still in progress. But um, Perpetual. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, part of the gift, too, is that I can recognize that this is a lifelong journey for all of us, you know, and I'm grateful today that I can say these are my breaks and these are the things I'm working on fixing. You know, we talked about Kintsugi earlier. Um, but it was still, I mean, that started the process, and it was a journey. Um, and that journey took me to Colorado, where I just recognized I, I, I couldn't go back home yet. You know, I had gone through too much, too dark of a period. I was too hard on myself in that space. I can't put myself right back in that space. And so I ended up in Carbondale, Colorado. And um, there's a beautiful community of recovery there. Um, a lot of locals, a ton of meetings, um, a lot of people working on themselves and seeking help and a lot of resources. I got introduced to a therapist who was my therapist for years, who is a, still a rock to me, even though I don't talk to her as often anymore. Um, and I, I, I didn't plan on being involved with basketball at all. You know, I moved to the mountains. I figured, you know, I'd be able to snowboard, which I finally got to reintroduce myself to and or reconnect to, really, rather. And, um, you know, try to separate myself from this, this numbness, you know. Um, it was still, it was, I, I worked, I ended up getting a job with this wonderful program called Jay Walker Lodge, which works with young men in recovery. Um, 90-day program with another 90-day outpatient program and um, huge community of people that stay there and give back to it because of the impact it has on it. Go ahead. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. the, the part where it transitions from inpatient to outpatient, yep. I think that that part right there, the between part, is so essential. Mm -hmm. You know, like between you leaving rehab and being reintroduced to society, there needs to be a buffer. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. I just wanted to say that. It, it was a beautiful program, and I learned a ton. Um, There's a lot of amazing people involved with it, and a lot, of, a lot of amazing men that went through it that I, you know, got to know. And, you know, we talked earlier about the world of recovery, greet people's skeletons first, like closet wide open, here's all my shit, you know, and you endear yourselves to each other there. And like you said so perfectly, you know, from there, then you just get to learn all the good. Like you already got all the bad out of the way. And so you create these amazing connections and, um, you know, the value of community uh, was, I think, one of the gifts of what Jay Walker had within Carbondale. Uh, there was a community around it that knew what it was. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, the lodge, which was inpatient, and the solutions program, which was outpatient, was really only divided by a pizza bar. <laughs> So there's like a bar literally next door and the whole the idea was look at the end of the day everywhere we go 
in life, there's going to be the world. You know, there's going to be bars, there's going to be alcohol, triggers. there's going to be triggers. You know, we uh, need to understand that if we have each other and if we learn how to communicate and establish that value of self, you know, and establish that connection to your sobriety and to your and that commitment to your recovery, you know, then you can, you don't have to hide from anything, you know. And I, I loved that Carbondale's community was, didn't stigmatize jaywalkers, um, I love, like we, t you know, Natalie and her dissertation about tribes and the, the natural inclination for those who are able to find success and make it out that come back and give back. You know, I, I compare that to the world of basketball. You look at the Seattle basketball village and you see how many young men and women who've gone forth and done great things or, you know, or learned great things and then came back to give that back to the community that helped them. I think it's healthy communities have that feedback nature of, or compounding nature of, you know, individuals creating ripple effects that lasts way longer than any one person would, you know, um, if that makes any sense. But Yeah, it's like that in recovery world, too. Exactly, exactly. And that was the beautiful nature of it was, you know, there were so many people that stuck around and ended up working with it. And, you know, I didn't go to Jaywalker, but... A mentor of mine and somebody I love dearly, Dirk, was the CEO, and when I was there for a little while, I had some time under my belt, he offered me a job, and I uh, went over there and started working with all these young men. I had a little time under my belt, and I started started coaching in, in an aspect recovery. And at the same time, I was asked to coach a basketball team at the local school. And uh, I didn't anticipate that I would be doing that, um, I didn't think I was going to be there that long, and yet, uh, you know, I was endeared to the community at that point, and the more I learned about just that valley and the people in it, the more I felt... Accepted? Accepted, I felt belonging, and I felt like, yeah, I want to do something to give back, and the best way I know how to give back really is by teaching the game that I know, especially when you find yourself in a amongst a population of people that don't really know basketball. Everybody loved hockey, the winter sports, yeah. snowboarding, skiing. We were great at that, but there wasn't that big of a community around the game that I knew and loved, the language I spoke. And so when I was kind of really given permission to um, step into this role with for the community, I, uh, it felt like something I should do. And, um, yeah, man, my, my time in Colorado was... It felt like an incubation period for me. It's like I had this delayed adolescence where I never let myself be myself, and I had this opportunity to learn, and I didn't do it perfectly. Um, and yet I, I got to do it by ingratiating myself into community by offering something I had, which was a knowledge of the game and how to teach it, um, a willingness to give the time and show up, because at the end of the day, coaching at that level, you just got to be consistent. You got to be there. You know, everything else will end up working out if you're not too egotistical about it, you know. Um, and so I had this world of recovery around me. I had this opportunity to stay connected to the language I spoke, which is basketball. And through all of that, I continued to build community and build relationships and friendships. And um, it, it became an incredible chapter, you know. Um, you know, go back to these modes of expression and how to bring people together. I was a mixed-race gay male from the Pacific Northwest in the middle of the mountains at 8,000 feet, and um, 
I just showed up to do this one thing and people came to me for it, you know, and people appreciated me for it. And so I felt like I belonged. And, um, you know, it's, I talk about, I came out to my, my social world and it took me years and years to figure out how to come out to basketball because basketball as a culture was a big hindrance to me because it was something that I sought belonging to so badly. Um, and yet I also knew the culture. I mean, today in 2023, the amount of post-game interviews where guys say pause when they say something that could vaguely be inferred as gay, right? When guys, when Shaq will always point out when Chuck says does something that could be inferred as maybe a little gay, right? It's, 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 it permeates the culture. And it's constantly, no matter how people say, oh, I'm not talking about homosexuality, I'm not being, um, you know, homophobic, but I've said this before, it's like, if your name was John and everybody started using John as like uh, the same word as lame and less than and weak and soft, then eventually, even though they keep saying like, bro, we're not talking about you. We're just, yeah, we're just saying John as in like this. Like eventually you're going to be like, but bro, this is painting a picture that John's lame and weak and less than, right? And I get charged up about this because I think it's, you know, we go back to this idea of representation and like the world that we're creating. Systemic. Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. It is, and it's, here's the other part of it is that I look back at this world I grew up on and I can't blame nobody because this is the world that they grew up in. You know, they're just living life according to the, the feedback they've been given. And this is the world. This is how we've spoken about this for so long. So this is how we speak about it. Nobody's really stood up and been like, yo, you understand that you're painting a picture for maybe one person. And even if it's just one person, the, paint, the picture you're painting is telling them that they will not ever be a part of this, no matter how possible that is. You know what that makes me think of? What's that? The Indian mascots. Mm-hmm. Like what so kind of representation? You're, you're less than you're 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 up there with a mythical creature like a fucking unicorn mm-hmm. or a dragon or whatever this school wants to call themselves. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you got to break the stigma of that also. Hundred percent. I mean, I mean, and that's where you know 2020 brought a lot of conversations out, right? The BLM movement and um, you know. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said it himself. It's like, we don't just have a racism issue. We have a discrimination issue. And it's not just one group of people. Everybody is discriminated against in our culture in some capacity. And so many groups of people are unseen and unrecognized and talked down to whether people will admit it or not. And it's in the way that we project these people in society. It's the way that our language permeates and reinforces these beliefs whether we recognize it or not. Um, and I, I, I'm emboldened to speak about it now and I'm emboldened to embrace some of these labels now because we're at a period in time where we have to have representation. You know, We have to see native individuals that go out and achieve success and are celebrated and are able to go back and be put on this pedestal and say, these are the things I went through and this is what's okay and this is not, right? Um, and you are entirely capable of doing whatever you want to, no matter what this world will try to tell you. Because what this world will try to tell you, for a lot of us, is what our brains will end up telling us. And whatever our brains tell us is what we're going to get to, right? 
And I, this is me as a kid that had every opportunity ever and told himself he's not allowed to feel his feelings. He's not allowed to express that that feeling of not having that same amount of access or privilege despite where he's at. I was not allowed. I didn't tell myself I was allowed to, and therefore I was not. And then I started telling myself that I'm not capable, and therefore I was not. And then when I started telling myself I was, speaking it, I was right. Every time, right? And when you were wrong, or not when you were wrong, when you told yourself you couldn't, you were also right. Exactly. Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent, man. And it's like, wow, these are lessons we've learned, you know, as a society. The cliches. For so long, these cliches that we're so hesitant to accept because they're cliches. Um, For a reason. 